everyone, and welcome to episode one of the Coach's Journey podcast. My name's Robbie Swale. I'm a coach based in London, and I'm the host of the podcast, uh, where I will be interviewing coaches, uh, having frank, open conversations about life as a coach, about building businesses, about creating impact with clients, and about how to deal with life in this profession. Conversations like that were really fundamental to me as I built my business. I had four or five right at the start, which really formed how I've gone about things since then. And I hope that these conversations will provide inspiration to you, to other coaches, wherever you are in your journey. Because the work that we're doing in the world is really important. In this conversation today, I'm really excited to introduce you to Katie Harvey. Katie is an amazingly experienced coach. She's got more than 14,000 hours of one-on-one coaching under her belt. She's been coaching for more than 18 years and supporting other coaches for more than 12 years. She has coached for organizations like BBC, BT, Disney, Christian Aid, among many others. She trains coaches for Coach U and supervises coaches at the London Business School, among many other bits of work training and supporting coaches that she does. In this conversation, we get to, I pick her brains on all kinds of parts of her work, why she doesn't have a niche, why she doesn't really have a website, uh, how she's built her business. We get a what I think is a hilarious story about how she accidentally chatted up her husband using a kind of coaching pickup line. Uh, look out for that. But there's so much in here that, that any coach at any stage can learn from. So I really hope you will get as much from the conversation as I got from having it. It's also extra special for me to get to introduce you to Katie, partly because she's not that easy to find online. So it's just lovely to be able to share her wisdom and her experience with you and be a part of that. But particularly for me, because she's been a massive part of my coaching journey. She's been supervising me on and off since pretty much I finished my training. And for the last 18 months or so, she's been my coach, coaching me through all kinds of things like getting married, uh, creating this podcast and the two books that I'm working on. And, and so I am just really excited to be able to share this conversation with you all. And with that, on with the podcast. So, Katie. Uh, welcome to the Coach's Journey podcast. Thank you very uh, much. This is really funny. Um, for some context, uh, K- Casey, you have been coaching me for like um, what, like almost eighteen months, I think, in this engagement, and we've been doing supervision almost since I started, on and off, uh, yeah. with some breaks. But but since pretty soon after I finished my coaching training, and this is the first time we've ever been on video. That's before. true. How so like, I've I've like heard it's like it's like meeting someone off the radio. Yeah. Um, because your voice sounds ever so slightly different to being on the phone. And also, like, you're moving. You're a real moving yeah, person. Yeah, I'm a real person. <laughs> but thanks <laughs> thanks so much for um, spending this time uh, today. And to start, I just got, I wondered if we should start from, if you remember, or the best memory you've got of when the first time that you heard or came across this slightly weird thing that we both do called coaching. Oh, I remember it really clearly. It was, um, I was reading, I was in a funny place in my life. I, I'd, I was living overseas in, in Colombia and I'd just come back, I think for a holiday from, to come back to the UK to visit family. 
and I was due to come back permanently at some point. But I was re- over in the UK, and I was reading, I think, a Radio Times or some. Oh, someone will probably remember, but it's a magazine that had on the back cover it had a day in the life of or a life in the day of. I can't remember which publication it was, but and it said um, a life in the day of a coach, a life coach, or something like that. And this was, I think, eighteen years ago. So in the UK. It was brand new, newfangled thing. And um, and I read it and every single word was just making my heart start thumping. And I was at the time really kind of at a very big crossroads in my life. I was living overseas. I was teaching English. I was not sure what I was doing with the psychology background that I got. And I knew I wanted to work in that field, but not sure how, because the route I had been going down wasn't quite right. So this was like, revelatory I was just saving every word thinking this is it this is it it was a bit like a movie moment and um do you remember anything that the 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 article said about coaching that really spoke to you uh I remember that it talked about how it was focusing on the present and the future and I remember it drawing a distinction between coaching and therapy and that therapy was tended to sit in the past and and explore that and I remember thinking yes the present and the future that's where my focus has always been and I've always been told off for it in the, <laughs> in all of the, the work that I was doing previously so I remember that and I remember I think that it talked about coaching being a partnership um, where traditional psychoanalysis let's say had the psychotherapist psychoanalysis being more of an expert doing analysis and I remember it talking about how coaching and the, the coach and the client were, were partners um, and the focus and the responsibility was placed on the client. And I remember thinking, I like that. That That's also what I like. Um, and I think uh, that's what I remember. But there were lots of words that I, and every one of them seemed to resonate. And, and that was like, it. this is a random question, but do you remember, you don't remember who the person is, presumably. Do you remember who the, the day in the life of the coach it was? I think I remember, although I'm very non-visual, so I've probably made this up. But I think there was a chair and a telephone. And, and no person okay. and, and I think I also quite like the telephone aspect of it because I've always loved the telephone since being young and I've always being non-visual and very auditory the telephone has always appealed to me so I think it had a kind of nice chair and this telephone by the side uh, I, but I may have made that up entirely <laughs> That's so funny but it, it, well we, you never know who something like this will get in front of so if you were featured if someone is listening and was featured in the radio times or something similar 18 years ago then you can let Katie know that, or you can know that you were... I would love to say thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But so you you already at that point had some kind of background in psychology and you said you were teaching abroad. So yeah, what what happened in life before coaching? So as a young person, I always knew that I wanted to work with people. It was very clear that part of it, at least. How did did you know? Um, Well, there's a... The, the earliest game that I played that I remember, but my mum has told me I must have been two or three because my brother wasn't born yet. And I used to um, I used to sit on a towel in the middle of the room and spread teddy bears all the way around the room. And I used to pretend the towel was a boat and that I would sail around and help people come out of the sea, which was the carpet, onto my boat. And then I would look after them. And I always knew that I wanted to nurture, I think. And when my brother was born... He, his present to me was this um, chatter telephone from the 70s. Um, and, and this chatter telephone thing, I would kind of pretend to speak on and pretend to talk to these teddies. And 
my early games were all about nurture, were all about support. And so I guess I always knew, and if anyone ever asked me, I said, I want to work to make people happy. That's what I would say as a little person. Mm. So I assumed that meant psychology. I thought, because at the time, back in the 80s then and the 90s, being a psychologist was the way I thought I needed to go. So did a psychology degree, um, which was interesting. I'm not sure how much I learned from that, actually. But maybe that was good in and of itself because I kind of didn't fall in love with it. But again, I assumed I needed to become a clinical psychologist to do the kind of work I wanted to do. So I took some courses in counselling and I became a Samaritan for a few years, kind of all in that area of supporting people. And um, But then the more I was doing it, oh, and then I had a job as a research assistant, which is something you tend to need to do to get on the clinicals course. And um, I had an amazing few years working in prisons, working in the community, working on looking at the links between childhood adversity and adult mental health, which was um, tough work, especially in the prisons, but um, amazing. And what I didn't realise at the time is it was skilling me up to to talk about very difficult subjects and to work with all ages and genders and walks of life. And and it was great and I loved it. But the more I did of it and the more I understood of clinical psychology, the more I recognised it wasn't the right path for me. Um, and what was, were the specific things that, uh, you know, you mentioned what attracted you to coaching were the specific things that, that yeah. helped you see that the psychology route wasn't the right one? One of them was um, because when back in the day when I was training it, the, the field of positive psychology was not a thing, um, in my degree at least. And I think Seligman was probably just starting, but it hadn't translated into my degree at the time. So I... In clinical and what we were discovering, it was it was always working people who were really properly poorly, mentally poorly. And working in the prisons as I was and in the community, it was with people at the, who were really, really struggling and suffering. And I got to a point where I was in a prison interview um, and a gentleman was telling me about some terrible things that had happened to him as a child. And I remember thinking about my tea and what I was going to eat. And I was planning my meal in my mind as this guy was sitting in front of me. And I recognised on the drive home from that, I don't think I can do this because mm. I think, I think my, I'm, I'm probably too soft, <laughs> too compassionate. So my way of dealing with it, I think, was to shut down. And, um, and I didn't want to shut down. I didn't want to be a person that had to think about their tea in order to survive the job. So one aspect of it was that I thought, I think I need to work with people who are functioning and I, I want to do preventative work where I get to work with people who are at a crossroads or who are maybe going a bit downhill in their confidence or in their career, not sure where they are. So, And I wanted to find a way to work with, catch that group of people there so that they can head off on their way into successful, productive, happy lives. But I felt like maybe I wasn't the right person to work with people who had really gone to a very, very tough place. Mm. I think that was mostly it at that stage. Yeah, and so then you saw this article on the back of the Radio Times, and and uh, or something, and then yeah. what happened? Well, then I, I kind of wanted. Part of me was over the moon. I felt like I'd found it. And, then and, part, and, and where were so? But you were only on a holiday back in the UK, and you were in. in I was living in Colombia, in South America. So, um, but I knew, I, I think if I remember the timeline, I think I knew I was coming back permanently to to the UK in a matter of months, I think, um, if I got the timeline right. So, I, yeah, I was part over the moon, 
excited and part um, terrified because I've always been quite um, a traditional person. I my my profile, my Myers Briggs would tell you that I quite like traditional careers and I quite like an establishment and and rules and structure all of that possibly quite boring stuff I quite like it so I'd always assumed that I would do something that had some big long-standing history to it and so part of me was thinking oh no this thing is newfangled people are just going to mock me and it and I'm going to have to be self-employed that's never what I thought oh no and so there was a big kind of panic what I thought I would do is do a bit of due diligence and so I found two coaches in the UK um there weren't very many and because uh, just if you don't mind like when is this and how old are you at this point like what's um I think 2001 I think 2001 and uh, I can't remember what would that make me 25 26 something like that around those times um so yeah I I called a couple of coaches and, and presumably there were only a couple of coaches, not quite, but but almost. At least that you could find. Yeah, I'm sure there were a few and I'm sure they were training and they were working, uh, probably working in corporates. But yeah, they didn't have much of a web presence because there wasn't, I mean, even the internet was fairly. Yeah, so uh, so yeah, I called I called two, I seem to remember, um, and, and asked them if I could ask them some questions and basically interview them a bit like you're doing me about their journey and, and every single thing they said, a bit like that article, just was was, that, was mm. just kind of making me go, "Yep, this is it, this is it." And there wasn't a, a tiny part of me that felt it wasn't. I was still terrified about the self-employment aspect and the flimsy aspect of it, but what they were telling me felt perfect. Mm. So yeah, that was that. And then I came back to the UK. Right, and then. Yeah, so, but that's such an interesting thing that you had this thing about uh, the establishment, about something that's solid. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that lots and lots of people who work as coaches struggle a bit with. I mean, probably lots of people across the world right now because those establishments are in strange places and the ability and possibility to work for yourself is much greater, certainly though, than it was, what are we on, 18 years ago. Mm. Um, It is very different, it feels But so then what happened? What what did you learn from them about? Did you learn from them, those two people, how to become a coach or what happened next? No, they, um, I think one of them had trained at Coach U, um, which at the time was, I think, the largest coach training provider. I'm not sure if that's right, but from my Googling at the time, it seemed the most established, the largest, and it was international. So she trained there, I think, and put me in, kind of told me where to research it. So I then thought, right, at least the the thing I can do is to train in a place that has some kind of establishment and some and that's been around a long time. So doing my research in that, it felt like Coachy was the place to do that. And so I signed up. And and what's the lovely part of the story is my lovely gram died at just this point, which is very sad. But she left me the exact amount of money to pay for the training course. Otherwise, I wouldn't have um, been able to do it or would have had to try and find credit cards or something. And uh, so it really did feel like, okay, that's her gift to me. I can I can train. So I I was back in the UK now and I got a job down here in Brighton where I moved to um, at American Express to pay the bills um, and trained at the same time 
because the training is virtual, so you train over the phone in the evenings at the weekend. And I don't really, I, I don't think I'd come across Coach You before, other than through you, because I know you you do some work now, running yeah. training for them, that kind of thing. So, for those people who don't know about Coach You, either about the training or about its origins, what what can you tell us about? Well, oh, I'm, I'm forgive me if I get any of this wrong. Anyone who's from Coach You and watching. But, um, <laughs> Leonard, who was said to be the father of coaching, although I think there are other people that would claim to be the father of coaching, but he was said to be one of them. And uh, he, uh, an American guy, a great inspirational guy from the sounds of it, he kind of came up with coaching and then was the founder, I think, of Coach You. And I think he then passed it to one of his mentees, um, Sandy Vilas. But I think he initially started Coach You really a, quite a long time ago now, but I can't remember when. Um, and it's it was always set up to be a virtual institute, although it does do face-to-face training, um, intensive training in London and around the world. But uh, mostly it's all across the world on the telephone or now on Zoom. And it, I loved that because you'd be in a teleclass with people from many, many different countries, predominantly the US it has a majority of students from there. But yeah, it was really nice to have that international feel. And I knew I wanted to work internationally. So that was kind of perfect for me. Ah, So that was always a thought of yours. Yeah. It needs to, you want it to be international. Yeah, I'd, I'd done quite a lot of traveling by that point and traveling has always been important to me. I've been always fascinated by different cultures and different languages. And so the idea that one of the things I think I'd read in this article was because at that time, a lot of it was telephone based, um, that you could work with anyone anywhere uh, as long as they had a telephone line. And I really loved that idea. So yeah, that coach you really appealed to me for that. Okay, so the phone thing was there from the start because you basically do all your work right now on the phone with no video and and mostly not in person. Is that right? That's certainly how we've worked together. Yeah, I would say the majority of it. It's not all, but ninety percent um, is over. It's just audio without either without video in Zoom or Skype, but also yeah, audio and not in person. But about ten percent is somebody coming to my home or me going somewhere, or going into an organisation. About ten percent is that probably. And were the reasons that you decided to work like that? I mean, we, we'll get into the detail more now. I, I don't know. It's, I'm sure lots of people, lots of people are curious about people who, um, about coaches who work remotely or work from home. You know, it, it, it has that possibility, like you saw in that interview, to be a business which supports a real variety of lifestyles. So what was it that, how come you ended up working mostly on the phone? I'm worried that I could bore you with this answer because it's really long. There's loads in it. So I'll try and be really succinct. <laughs> um, so I think it started because I was training on the phone. And I think I think I assumed it needed to be almost because I think I'd read that article. It was about telephone coaching. I was training telephone. And funnily enough, I was also working at American Express on the telephone. So I was also building up telephone skills then, I guess. Um, so and I was I was coaching leaders at American Express in their leadership, um, again around Europe on the phone. So I let's uh, just catch that one. Though. That's interesting. So you, how did that? Maybe, maybe we need to maybe we need to slow right down, Katie, and just go back. So then, so you were working at American Express, but not presumably first off, not as a coach. No, you're right. I I skipped that. I get the thing. 
so I got a job at American Express. It really was just to pay the bills. And I was a telephone customer service representative and I was earning £12,000 a year. And I remember initially, and I'm not proud of these feelings, but I remember thinking, what am I doing? My All of my hard work, my degree, my education, you know, and I'm, I'm here working on the phones at American Express at the age of 26 or whatever it was. And I was with 17 year olds and who were, you know, happy to have the first job. And, and my friends were in a very different stage of life at this point. They were all establishing their careers as whatever it was and buying houses with fiancés. And as, as I walked to work every day at the beginning, I remember feeling like, what am I doing? training to become a coach. What is that anyway? And on the phones as a customer service representative. Um, but actually, very quickly, funnily enough, with the help of a mentor coach, I have to say, because I had hired one straight away, and she really got me to start thinking about it in a positive light. Like, I was spending eight hours on the phone every day. I was working with really angry card members, and, and then they got me to be a salesperson. So I was then working on how to sell over the phone and I had a lovely team of people. I was talking to the team all the time about coaching. They were starting to refer my first clients to me. Uh, basically, it was an absolute dream job. I'd leave at four o'clock and I'd have nothing to do, no responsibility, no, no just could come home and immerse myself in coaching training. And it was amazing. And, and it was a good lesson to me in how to not be snobby or prejudiced about something and, and see the good in it. Um, and then very quickly, they moved me to a salesperson because they recognized I had some of that communication skill over the phone. I didn't really enjoy that. It didn't feel very ethical. Um, I was good at it. I was, I think, for a while, the top female salesperson. But um, yeah, ethically, not sure about it. So I don't feel I can take the thumbs up so much. But anyway, it was um, that was interesting. And then very quickly, because I have to say, American Express is very clever with its employees it spots people and it takes them and it keeps a hold of them and um, so they spotted me and they got me to go and work with the um employee engagement team um an hr part of hr and then they got to use they knew i was training and coaching and they they used me to work with leaders around europe first level leaders really working with them when they hadn't really performed so well on their team climate surveys so uh yeah it's really good they were very early adopters of coaching in that way and I was getting tons of experience it feels like there's so many ways already we could we could jump off from that but I heard that both your colleagues in the first job they spotted and they were referring people to you right and also then American Express somehow spotted you moved you to the sales role and then moved you again so what do you think the colleagues and or American Express were seeing I think the thing that I'd been training for a lot of years to do, which was to connect with people and connect with people in a warm and safe way that helped people feel comfortable and safe and then be able to think about how they wanted to move forward in whatever way they did. But I think it's um, I think one of my strengths is around being able to connect with people and and help them feel good in that space, safe in that space. And I, I'd been training in that, as it were, with the jobs that I'd done and the couple of years teaching in Colombia. And and I'd been, yeah, that had been what I'd spent my time doing. And I think I was naturally strong at that. So, yeah, I think they spotted that communication skill and relationship skill. Yeah. And then it sounds like a, you know, a slightly tricky coaching assignment from American Express if it's people who are struggling 
yeah. or their the system says they're struggling. Yeah. What, was that were those the first paying clients that you had, or had you already had a few around? Were you coaching alongside the work at American Express? I was coaching alongside. I, I'd started off pro bono um, with I think the very first was my flatmates. Um, I'm just thinking about confidentiality. A friend of my flatmates. Yeah. And um and I think that was my first and that was pro bono and then. And then some of my colleagues, the team members, then told other people about me. Somebody told their mum. And so that was that was pro bono to start with. And then I started very low fee, very, very low. I seem to remember £10 per session, I think, was my my first fee. Uh, But then working internally at American Express, they certainly weren't paying me any differently. I was still being paid £12,000 a year, but they were um, using me as part of that to do to work with the leaders. Um, yeah, it was it was great. I'd always assumed I would never work in a corporate environment because my background wasn't that. Well, I had and my family never worked in corporations, and so I'd always assumed I would be a personal coach. But American Express, I'll always be grateful to because that that opportunity to work with those leaders meant that I understood much more around that corporate context and the language, and um, that was really useful. And it opened up both in terms of some skill set, but also in terms of confidence made me feel like oh okay I think I could do this I could add this to my coaching practice yeah there's sometimes uh, for people who don't have a corporate background because I'm the same uh, yeah. you know there's sometimes this like you know slight fear of the corporate world because it's so serious and so I don't know hard hitting or all these things and yeah. it's a great experience to have got to get in there relatively early on and get that feel and then feel ah yeah I've done that now. yeah I'm really lucky I, I really feel very grateful. And again, at the time, I'm not sure how grateful I was. I, I think I was a bit by this stage, definitely. But yeah, it's it's just in retrospect, looking back, you think, wow, that was really fortunate. I'm just not sure what I'd be, whether my coaching practice would look quite different now if I hadn't been for that. It might do. Yeah. And there's also just, it does strike me again, though, there, is some, there was clearly something about you enough that you know, to hear about your colleagues referring their mums to you, you know, it's like, they even though it's free at that point, there's a signal you're getting there, I guess, from them, which is, ah, we believe that in you, that you can do this. Yeah, I, I was racked with quite a lot of insecurity at this point. So I'm, I was, I was hopeful, and things did seem to be starting to happen like that. And I was, I was extremely passionate about coaching, like, absolutely had a fire in my belly about it so that was true at the same time I was I was anxious about whether it was possible whether I was any good at it could I really do anything um but I've I always felt really confident in my ability to connect with people and to care about them that was something I never really I never wavered on that so I thought well at least I can connect with them and listen to them and and I remember my mentor coach at the time saying just remember that if if all you do in inverted commas is you're with someone and you care deeply for them, that's an enormous amount for a human being. So I'd always, always remember that whenever I felt anxious. That's so funny. I can't remember if I've told you this before, but a vital moment in my coach training was when Vegard, who was one of the trainers on the course that I did, said at the end of one of the um, the modules, I think, he just said, well, look, just remember, look, if you sit with somebody mm. and you just listen as well as you can and yes. trust the process you'll be doing great work. And I still remember that sometimes these days, years later going, yeah. okay, wait, I still did that really unusual thing that most people don't get much of in any one week with this person and how, what a gift that is. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that Vanguard 
gave that to you and my first coach, Laura Berkey, she gave that to me. And I really, if, if even three coaches listen to this, right. I would absolutely love to be passing that on again. That if you listen with your whole heart and you connect with the person and care for them, and then that's giving someone an enormous gift, regardless of the powerful questions and the aha moments and all of that stuff, you know, it's, we have to remember that that's an, an incredible gift. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's one of those tricky things, isn't it? Always about um, talking about coaching is that when you, you know, that makes sense to us, right? We've sat in there and we've been on the receiving end of it. Uh, it's a slightly more difficult thing to explain that that's what is magical yeah. about coaching to someone who has never, <laughs> never heard of coaching before yeah. or is a skeptic or whatever. But I really believe in that, you know, yeah, when I just, yeah, just imagine how often do you get to sit with somebody and they really care deeply about you, just you for an hour or two hours or whatever somebody last night said to me and she's just a new coat new client that's just started with me and she said um I feel like I've just had an hour's pampering session and that's how she described the session and I was over the moon because it actually been I felt a really hard session for her and um for her to describe it as a pampering session and I actually think people the clients don't find it that hard to understand how powerfully listen I think the people that find it hardest are the new coaches who feel like surely that's not enough in order to be paid in order to feel as though I'm a good coach surely it's not enough to really listen deeply and to connect and uh, in order to add value I need to be doing an enormous amount more than that and and I, I always applaud coaches desire to improve and to strive for mastery and I always wish that maybe more of us could take on board that sense of yeah it's it's hugely powerful to listen yeah do you remember or what can you tell us about you know I'm imagining that you've at least come much closer to taking that on as a person and understanding that on a on a deeper level yeah how did you move towards that point I am asked that a lot by people, um, by new coaches who who are frequently struggling with the idea of adding value or giving value. Um, and I'm not sure that my answer is terribly helpful for them, but it, it is just a true one. I think it's the thousands and thousands of hours of coaching that I've done and the thousands of tiny bits of evidence of somebody saying last night that felt like a pampering session and someone else say, you know, crying because they feel like they've been heard on something or the first time someone tells you even something fairly small they might feel, but it's the first time they've, they've said it to anybody and, and the fact that they feel that they were heard in that and they feel lighter as a result. It, it's those hours and hours and hours and tiny moments and tiny bits of feedback that I think, for me, help me to get it. Um, I'm, I hope other people might get it a bit quicker than me <laughs> and they might not need quite as much evidence as I needed back then but for me I have to say I think it was the I think it was all that evidence built up over time that helped me get it yeah yeah and this is right is this right that I, I found an old biography of yours from when we were doing going to do some work together at the coaching school and it said on that that you have done at that point which is probably at least a year ago you've done 14,000 hours of one-to-one coaching yeah. I think it might be more. I think, it, yeah, I'm fairly certain it is. I need to do the maths on it and I haven't. There comes a point where, yeah, I'm not sure what I'm counting for anymore, but I think it might be 50. I, I have a feeling that I, I'm, 
I've worked really, really hard as in, in terms of a lot of hours. It's been incredibly joyful. I've done an enormous number of hours over these years and I haven't ever spoken to another coach who's worked as many hours as I have over the years. I'm sure there are, um, but I have never spoken to anybody who's <laughs> done as many hours per week as certainly I was doing in the early days for a decade or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, Take us back there. Let's maybe go back there. It's, you know, you're at American Express. You're coaching some of their uh, emerging leaders or the leaders that are just uh, struggling in their performance reviews. You've got some, you know, uh, pro bono clients and then some people paying you. You're kind of inching the prices up as you feel presumably yeah. gradually more confident with that. Exactly. What, what made the difference? How did the, because now, as far as I know, you don't work at American Express. So what's the, how's the <laughs> shift happened over that time? Oh, that was, now, that is a funny story, actually. It's, it's interesting when you tell people, because to me, I wouldn't have thought I had so many stories. <laughs> there are a few funny stories along the way. Um, so I always knew that I wanted to set up on my own. I say wanted to, I kind of felt like I needed to in order to be a coach, but self-employment still really scared me. Um, so I'd always planned that I would keep saving money to have a little bit in reserve and then to maybe down because one thing that was amazing about American Express is I could go down to four days and then down to three days and then down to two days they were so flexible so I did go down to four days that was great I'm building up my coaching work now I'm earning more as a coach than I was in my four days in American Express at this point right. but is that that's not just the one day presumably at this point are you doing evening I work and evening work yeah so I was always keeping the weekend free. I've always done that. But I was working evening work and one day. I was working hard, a lot of hours, um, but loving it. And um, yeah, earning more as a coach but than, than American Express. But, um, and I kept saying, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to leave. I will leave. But I, I'm not sure whether I would have done. And then they told me they were going to make me redundant. Um, and they said that I wasn't, I always had a job on the phones. I could go back to that. So they weren't making me redundant from that, but they were making the entire department in, in the employees' um, engagement. In all of that area, they were making redundant. They closed it. So I was really pushed. Really. I wish I had a better kind of like, I decided I was going to set off on my own. No, I didn't. I was completely pushed because I could have gone back on the phones. And I'm, I'm glad I had the courage not to. I'm proud of myself for that, but it did take a real nudge. And so I decided, okay, it's now or never. I've got to do this thing. And so I left. And uh, if I'm honest, I was really frightened, but I then set up on my own. I think I got married at exactly the same time as well. So there's a lot of changes going on. Yeah, that's serious. Yeah. But I, but I love it. It's a sec- it feels like a second gift from the universe. Well, the first was from, yeah. your, from your grand, but this one is yeah. just like, look, Katie, just sort yourself out. Qu- yeah. quit, quit this job. Oh, yeah. You're not going to quit here. You have to go now. It was. It was just like that. And and I did. And yeah, have never, ever looked back since. Yeah. yeah. And that first bit with that fear, what? how did you get through that? Yeah, well, being me, um, I just worked crazy hours. Um, that's what, if I'm frightened, I get into action. That's my go-to. And so it's I be quite a useful pattern because yeah. fear often freezes people. Yeah. And it doesn't freeze me. It makes me want to take action. It, it can be frantic action and I can burn myself out with it. So um, not necessarily in that week or something, but chronically over 
for a couple of years, I, that action could be far too much. But yeah, it's, it was useful. And it was in, because I definitely accelerated the growth of my practice through that fear. I definitely did. So I suppose I was, I was coaching a lot and I was asking my clients if there was anyone they knew that might want any support. I, I actually remember I lived in the centre of Brighton and I remember going into the shop opposite me and saying, hey, do you know of anyone who wants some coaching? And I was kind of going door to door. Not really, but I did with that one. And she said, oh, my, yeah, my boyfriend does. Um, so I had a client then from that. But I love, I love that. Um, that, you, <laughs> that just happened to you. you. You went into the shop, said, do you know anyone who wants any coaching? And they said yes, and maybe referred someone to you. Now, I don't know if that became a client, but again, I think these are like, and you're nodding, they did become a client. This is amazing, right? Amazing little story of client creation. Yeah. And I think from the stories you've told so far, we do kind of know where that came from, right? Because you've always been interested in that. There's something you've talked about, there's something about your energy that meant that, you, you know, and your ability to care for people that just meant that your colleagues were sending people your way. And you'd spent all this time with all these different kinds of people in the work in the prison system and all that kind of thing, which gave you that ability to do it. And you are a top salesperson. So there's so much in the mix, but it's just a great story that you just walked in there and found a client on the street, essentially. It feels a little bit desperate. <laughs> uh, when, I, when I remember that back, it, it wasn't born out of any huge desire to, <laughs> to serve. <laughs> At that particular moment, I remember feeling quite... I just want to find some clients and just thinking, well, I just want to, and as I say, the fear propels me into action. So I just walked into a shop and, and asked, uh, I mean, yeah, it does feel a little bit desperate, but it led to a really interesting client that I remember fondly. So, you know, there's a good outcome from that. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad for that part of me that gets into action, but I, these days I think I can temper it better so that it's not so frantic. Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, you'd already grown a, the business a certain extent by this point because you said you were making more money from the coaching part-time than the American Express what were the things that you did that led to that growth both then and I guess over the next year or two as it as as the business developed so I mean the biggest thing I did and have always done is to have conversations um as the prosperous coach book would talk Ah, about but of course you were way ahead of the prosperous coach well, I have to say, when I when the Prosperous Coach came out, which, by the way, for anyone listening, is a really, I, I think it's a great book um, about coaching practice building. And when it came out, I remember feeling a bit nervous when I read it, uh, when I had it in my hands, because I remember thinking, what if there are loads of secrets to practice building that I don't know about and that I've been getting it all wrong my way and supporting other coaches to get it all wrong, maybe. And and I remember reading the book and thinking, oh, phew. <laughs> I did it and, and it wasn't a fluke the way I did it and uh, I, I obviously gave far too much power to the men who wrote the book as though they know the answer as opposed to me but it, it felt um it felt, everything that they talked about in that book which for me was around having conversations with people powerful ones and really connecting with them that is how I did it really I would I was young and so passionate about coaching and I didn't have much in my life which I also think was quite helpful I didn't have a partner I didn't have children at that point and I didn't have um yeah hobbies I'd just come back to the UK so everything I was doing was meeting people trying to make friends trying to build a life and everyone was asking me what do you do Who are well you? this is and great right because that is such a for any most coaches 
uh, our win- wince at the question, what do you do in some way? And, oh, I, and I was... I'd be really curious, what were you saying then? And also, what are you saying now? I think it's similar. Um, so what I never did was say, well, I work on the telephones at American Express as a customer service representative. Uh, and it wasn't by this stage because I was embarrassed about that. It's because I wanted to talk about the coaching. So uh, I would but, say... I'm. But, a- but that's a great insight, right, that I don't think everyone always gets, which is you can choose what to say when someone says, yes. what do you do? And... If you're working as a coach at all, it's just as, I think, it's just as valid. It was a big moment for me. I got some great coaching on it. I remember exactly where I was sitting when I got this coaching. It was just like, oh, I could just start introducing myself as a coach because I was by this point getting paid a little bit of money by a few people to coach some people. And it meant much more to me than the other work that I was doing at that time. And I think it's a great, you know, kudos to the courage you had to just go, I just want to talk about this one. Let's, let's, I'm going to say that. And I mean, it doesn't feel as though it was very courageous at the time because I was young and uh, I think I would, I may have found it more difficult now, actually, funnily enough. But yeah, then I was, I'm a coach and people were very interested because they'd never heard of it. I had some hilarious answers, the questions like one was, do you read palms? That was something. I got a lot of questions around a sports coach, which sport, a lot of that. And some hilarious people talking about me being a vehicle and things like that. So nobody really knew. So um, it led to some really great conversations and people would say, how do you find your clients? What do you do? How is it different from therapy? And it was, um, it was great. And I, because I was passionate about it, I was reveling in all those conversations. Okay, and- so I was going to ask, because uh, for me and I think other people sometimes, all those questions are all a bit squirmy. Yeah. Um, but it's, but so, it, and I want to check that you're not just remembering with rose tinted glasses. Like it said, you, you said you were reveling in it. Was that learned over time or was from the very start, you were just like, no, I want to tell people about this amazing thing. I'd like to say it was squirmy because I, I support so many people for whom it's squirmy <laughs> now. And I know I really feel that it is for them. But I think one of the benefits of doing it back in the day was that it was so new. I, I really felt like I had very little to lose. Um, I was very young, so there was that to it. I was in that place where everyone felt as they were starting something new. Someone wanted to be in a band. Someone wanted to be a poet. So I, and I was mixing with people in their 20s who were all trying new stuff. So I think that was part of it. But also, yeah, the profession was so new that I felt I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to share it with people. And I didn't have – nobody had any preconceived ideas about – executive coaching or life coaching or they didn't they weren't really putting it on me so I could just talk about it and 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 share this kind of new thing I'd found so I yeah as I say I think if it were now I have a feeling I might find it quite squirmy now if I were starting now but back then yeah I I don't think I am remembering with rose tinted glasses because I remember quite a lot of conversations I mean one was with my husband what I is how I met my husband really was um he asked me about he was taking photographs of me for my website I needed a photographer for my website and he was recommended to me he took some photos of me and in the process was asking me about what coaching is he'd never heard of it and I was excitedly telling him about what coaching is and and I tried this tool that people said to do which is well for example if you had one area of your life that you'd change what would what would it be and I asked him that question and he looked at me and said, love. And that was that moment. We kind of both went silent and went, uh, okay, there's something happening here. And, and he is now my husband of many, many I love years. This. this sounds like a working title film. But let me just, <laughs> let me just catch us up. So 
you're just starting out and so far you have been just ha- basically having conversations and that includes walking into the shop across the street and creating a client yeah. and starting to talk about coach coaching to your photographer and creating a husband <laughs> what else did you like i mean you know i've got loads of kind of specific questions and i want to get into how you work now because i think that is really interesting in lots of ways and the way that you work with clients and i've experienced how good that is myself and and the the value of it in of of all the different ways you work but but i'm also curious because it's especially when we've got someone like you who's been coaching i mean i, I guess amongst the longest like the most number of hours that you've come across amongst yeah. the longest time of people that are coaching certainly that are calling themselves coaches mm-hmm. it's really easy to forget all the stages in between and so i guess i'm just curious what are the things over the last what you said 18 years that have are there any things that feel important to pull out that have made a really big difference as you've grown your business and and moved your work on to where you are now Mental coaching is the first thing that springs to mind. Yeah, and I was going to ask about that because it sounded like you did that. You know, that's one of the things I learned that from the prosperous coach, essentially, right? Hire somebody to work with you because they can help you loads and loads and loads. Yeah. But you did that off your own back, it sounds like, right from the start. You mentioned the mental coach you had, I think, when you were still training almost. Yeah, uh, some things sound so good in retrospect and then the reality of them sometimes is a little different. So that sounds very proactive as though I got a mentor coach straight away. What actually happened was at Coach U at the time, people, uh, alumni were allowed to pester new signups, undergrad, um, to say, please can I be your mentor coach? Please can I be your mentor coach? And Laura uh, sent me, I remember, seven emails saying, hi, you look like the kind of person I'd like to mentor coach. And and it took seven emails for me to have the guts or the organisation to get back to her and say, go on, I'll give it a go. Um, Wait, this is interesting because like lots of people worry about how much should I hassle yeah. potential clients? Yeah. <laughs> so, but, with that. Yeah? Yeah. Um, and the lesson was that it's, you, don't, you shouldn't always assume that it feels like hassle to the other person or that I personally don't email people seven times and beg them, but, but it did teach me that you can be, you can worry too much about how the other person is going to feel about something and you can get it wrong because actually in her case, it took seven attempts to contact me and, um, and it was one of the most powerful things I did as a new coach was having her alongside me for like maybe two years, maybe three years. I can't remember, but a number of years, um, very, very useful for me having her for many reasons. The experience of being coached, her personal development work with me as I grew as a person, because I was young and I had a lot to learn. Um, so that was really important. And then the practice development as well. So that, that was... Yeah, maybe you've just said it there, but actually just for people who don't, because there's so many terms that get used slightly differently in different parts of coaching. When you say mentor coach, mm-hmm. what, are, what are you meaning? I really like coach use. Um, metaphor for mental coaching they talk about the three-legged stool of um, mentoring and I think what they talk about is one of the stool one of the legs of the stool is practice development so building up your practice marketing finding clients the structures the policies all of that stuff that's one of the legs another leg is around personal development so in order to be the best coach you can be you really want to be growing into the best you you can be. And that so that is a big part of mentoring for me, always has been that that kind of personal growth aspect of it. 
Um, you don't have to do that in mentoring, but it's one of the legs that's available, as it were. And then the final leg is about professional development, which is where you think over the core coaching competencies. If you're ICF inclined, you think about coaching skills. You Under that leg comes the umbrella of supervision, which is where you will talk about client cases and, and explore them for your growth as a coach. Um, so so those are the three legs as coach you would define it of of mentor coaching and I, I like that and so what I did a lot with Laura back in that early time was actually the middle one around personal development yeah I had loads of stuff that I was working on with her and I became a better coach through that work that I was doing on myself. Yeah I, I really like that model of um, the three legs of mentor coaching and you know yeah. as I've done more and more work with coaches having them as my clients it, it, you know I find myself in trying to serve and support them in whatever way I can that those three things almost always come into it and but the balance the balance isn't always the same yeah was that your experience with Laura and and what about the mentor coaches that followed yeah um that is exactly my experience when I'm mentoring coaches and certainly mine as a personal, as a mentee. Um, yeah, in, in those days, I worked more heavily in the personal development space and then quite a bit in the practice development, but not so much the professional development. But then there have been coaches. There was one wonderful lady, Claire Pedrick, I worked with as I was um, working for my PCC with the ICF. And we did, I think, solely professional development at that point. And then I've worked with the wonderful Bill Cummings and that was solely personal development again for a period. So I, yeah, I've worked in different ways with different mental coaches, but in, in nearly all cases, I've known that those three legs of the stool are available and I've made my choice. And, and that's when I, when I'm working with, with coaches, it's always their choice as to which of those legs they want to work with at any one time or a blend of them, you know? Yeah. And it, it, you know, it feels to me that they're, they're so interrelated those three things if you want yeah. to have a successful career as a coach um you know and i don't know one of the thoughts i had is that one of the reasons that things like uh, creating a client in the shop across the road happens is sometimes because of the work that you've done on yourself either through either deliberately through coaching or through just life experience you know that as we change those conversations become different and easier and all those kinds of things yeah, I, I would, I'd agree. I, I feel like the more comfortable you are in your own skin, the more natural you are in that way and authentic, all of those lovely words, then the, the easier it is for people to relate to you and feel safe with you and, and build a connection. There's less stuff in the way between you and them. And, and I feel like through that work that I did with those brilliant people, I got rid of a lot of stuff that made it easier to connect with people. Yeah. So, so mental coaching was was the first answer to that question I asked about. You know, yes. What have been the key things that you've done that have really helped you develop and grow your business, your practice, uh, yourself as well? I guess. Hmm. Yes, mental coaching. Um, and what have been the other key things? I suppose talking about referrals has been another key thing for me. I've I, initially I didn't know that this is how my practice would grow and develop I think I hoped it but I didn't know it would I thought I might have to do lots and lots of networking events and I might have to go online and or when that became a thing I might have to have an online presence and um and then 
but what happened was in those very early days of having some clients for American Express, etc., they told people who told people. And I saw that I my practice was growing through people telling people about me and referring me on. And as I noticed that, and also my first coach, Laura, really drummed that into me. She she had a process that she'd make me go through where on my third session with any client, I had to have the referral conversation. <laughs> She was quite strict about it. Um, and I I don't do this and haven't done it since, but it was a good practice for me to get into. And what that meant was on session three, I would, at the beginning, ask permission just to spend five minutes asking them a question and they would always grant it. And I would ask, um, I would say, I build my practice through referrals. And so if there's ever anyone that you think would benefit from working with me and in the way that you hopefully are so far, um, it would be fantastic if you wouldn't mind passing on my details um, to them. And so I'd formally have that conversation with them at the beginning. And uh, that did feel clunky and awkward. I remember it, but it was good practice to get into saying those words. And, and I think over time I made it much more natural and much more me, and I wouldn't do it on session three. And I'd just say it when it felt appropriate. And I'd, I'd ask the clients that I was really loving working with in particular. Um, So I, I, I adapted it, but I think I have always told people that that's how I grow my business and that I feel really grateful for that and I love it and so I think I've encouraged people to pass on my name when it feels right for them to do so yeah and I mean I guess that takes us a little bit and maybe the answer is in what you've just said but that takes us a little bit to I guess we haven't really touched on who do you work with well, um, my, my stock answer for this, I have a stock answer, but I think it does vary over months and years. But so I work with, uh, say, a third of my time, I work with individuals who employ me independently for themselves to work on making some kind of positive change in their lives. And and that could be as broad as I've just made it sound. That could be anywhere in the world, a man or a woman of any different age, and it could be any positive change in their life that they want to work on. So I am very much what I think is called an, uh, a generalist coach, which I know doesn't sound very glamorous, but um, it, but that's that's what I do. So about a third of my time, I work with people on any topic that they bring independently. Then another third of my time, and as I say, these thirds can vary year to year, but another third of my time I'll work within corporations where they foot the bill and they have me work with senior leaders in the organisation usually or mid to senior. Um, I'm working with them around leadership topics and work-life balance and stress management and time management and all sorts of different topics. Um, Again, fairly general there. And then another third of my time, I work within coaching. So I supervise groups of coaches and individual coaches, and I teach coaching back at CoachU, where I train now, and also internally in some organizations. And I work, for example, at London Business School, um, doing supervision there and coach training there. And um, so about a third of my time is, is doing that, which I love being back in the coaching community and, and giving back to it. Yeah. And I, it's interesting to think sometimes when we do split our time in those ways between different groups of people, how does your, I guess, particularly maybe between the individuals who contact you directly and the corporate, the corporations work, mm-hmm. how do your approaches differ between those pieces of work, if at all? Well, a glib off the cuff answer is that it doesn't differ, that I turn up as me and I'm the same and the coaching process is the same 
um, the definition of it is the same in both cases. So I kind of feel like it, it doesn't differ, but that is too simplistic because it does differ somewhat in that sometimes with the corporate work, you've got uh, another agenda, as it were. You've got a sponsor in the mix as well. Mm. Um, and and sometimes you might be working with multiple people from the same team, which you wouldn't be with independent client. And so there are other, there are other things to take into account sometimes um, with the corporate work. And also some of my corporate work I do in conjunction with another organization. And so I've got their reputation that I'm also representing in the mix. Um, so some, yeah, there are differences, but predominantly I show up and hold a reflective space for people to bring whatever they want to bring in and, and we do the, the coaching work within it. So yeah, the quick answer is it's the same. Yeah, but after 15,000 hours or whatever it is, there's a lot of uh, texture of skills and experience to bring into those conversations. So I, I imagine they can end up going pretty differently at different times. Yeah, I think they can. Uh, I, I think that's true. And I probably forget that when I'm talking simply about it. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you've, you've kind of brought it in by talking about that you talk about yourself as a generalist coach. And I remember when I first heard you say that, I thought, wow, how... That's, you know, I love that you say that because one of these things, you know, I I did a little bit of limited market research ahead of doing these podcast interviews. And like, I think came back, I asked, I can't remember how many people, but at least four times came back, talk about niches, talk about niches, talk about niches. Um, And I have my own thoughts on that. But given that you have just explicitly said that you don't have a niche, I'm wondering, you know, what do you say when coaches ask you about that? What are your thoughts on on how and when it's useful to have a particular group of clients that that you really work with or or something like that? I am also asked that a lot about, um, do I need to have a niche? Um, And it's partly why I do call myself a generalist because I hear a lot of talk in in the world of coaching about the need to have one. I hear a fair few people making statements around it's important to have a niche. Um, And there are some coaching schools that devote classes to finding your niche. Um, My personal view, and I I really want to hold it as my personal view because I'm not saying it's truth, but my personal view around it is that if a niche comes to you and you're passionate about working with that group of people or that particular specialism or that particular topic, and there are many reasons why it might come to you that way, but if you really feel that, then I think having a niche or a specialism can be a fantastic marketing tool mm-hmm. as well as wonderful for for bringing joy and passion to your coaching practice so it's certainly not that I'm anti a niche there have been many people I've worked with who have loved working with uh, women for example and mm-hmm. they just been very very connected to the idea of working with that gender and particularly that gender within the upper echelons of organizations and so that that's where they want to work for me, the problem comes when people feel they have to have a niche, but they're coming for one for the sake of having one. And it's not passion led. It's not heart led. It's just, it's very much kind of commercially led. And that's where I've seen it hasn't worked. And that's where people feel uncomfortable and, and they start to feel insecure and unconfident because of that need to find it. I think, I mean, it can be a great marketing tool. You think about coaching expats, you know where to find expats, let's say. It's easier to find them. You think about working with first-time parents and you, there are places you can go to find them. So as a marketing technique and tool, I can see its value, but I, I really think it's important to feel a connection and a passion for that group that you want to work with rather than it just being a, an easier way to find them. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely feels to me like... 
um, you know, if you think about that frame of the victim or the player in the game, it feels like a lot of people are trying to find a niche because they're kind of victim of this marketing story that you have to do it, not because they're trying to create exactly the work that they, that they really deep down want to be doing. Yeah. I think the tricky thing is then a lot of new coaches will say to me, I I don't know what deep down the work is that I want to be doing. I don't know who those people are. So I really like to share with them that I still don't. Um, (laughs) It's not like after 17, 18 years that it's become apparent to me that I want to work solely with dentists. It it hasn't. I, I love working with people who want to really engage in this coaching process and make some kind of positive change in their life, use the reflective space to stay as healthy mentally as possible. And I love working with those people. And they come in all shapes and sizes and all walks of life. And I think that that variety may have been part of the reason that I've kept as passionate and even more passionate about my profession and my work as I have over the years. Maybe it is that lack of a niche that has worked for me in lots of ways. Yeah, and, and maybe now's the time to get into it because I think it's really interesting. It's just, you know, given that, given that your business runs on referrals, uh, you must have this amazing list of people you've worked with over the years who occasionally send people your way and between them that it ticks over. Maybe it's interesting now to get into that process of how people become a client with you. You know, where do they, they arrive via some email or call or whatever and, and the, the process that you take people through. To, to help you, you know, create, particularly, I guess, in the individual's third of your work, just because I think that we don't always hear from coaches, especially ones with as much experience as you, and you must have played with this in different ways over the years, about how they do that and why. And I think that's a really useful thing for not just new co- coaches starting out, right, for other coaches who have been yeah. doing it a certain way for a while and are just thinking, there's something not quite right about this, or I wish I had you know it's just a slightly different perspective on on this whole piece yeah well um I've tried different ways over the years but have have come back to pretty much how I started I think um so so what happens is typically someone will pass my name to someone who sounds as though they could could be find coaching valuable and I'll get an email pop into my inbox usually that says hello I've been given your name by and then they'll say the name usually and I wondered if I could find out more about working with you in coaching and so I will reply and say how lovely it is to meet them and that I'd love to invite them to an hour free consultation session um, I, which is a very common thing, of course, in the coaching industry to do is to invite people to have a conversation with you at no cost, just for you both to meet each other and, and find out what chemistry there is and to explore what the person might be wanting from coaching and if what you can provide meets their expectations. So we do that in a what I call a consultation session. And then at the end of that hour, usually people are clear, they have all the information they need and, and they understand about what coaching is enough and they feel the connection or not between us and usually they make a decision at the end of that call sometimes they go away think about it overnight and then they they typically decide that they want to work with me I think that's partly because it nearly always comes to referrals so they've already got that sense of I think I can trust this person and I see the difference it's made in my friend's life and so I think I want to do it so pretty much at the beginning they've usually decided they want to and then they, yeah, assuming they do decide they want to go ahead, then we we get cracking, and it's as a simple a process as that, really. Robbie. 
And so let me just check I've got that. So actually what, you, what you're what you saying is you think that mostly because of the referral and the quality of the referrals you're, you're, you're getting, mostly by the time they come to speak to you, the decision they're making is it's like a sanity check. It's like, do I actually like this woman? Do I actually want to spend this time with her? And you know, for all the reasons we've already talked about, they often get that feeling, yes, yes, I do. And, and then the decision for them becomes relatively straightforward. Is that is that right? I think so. I'm not, I don't quite know the ratio that's typically there of how, how ready they are to decide to work with me. But, and it will vary, of course, from individual to individual. But I do feel that the referral aspect of it means that they're over 50%, as it were. They're, they're already fairly decided that this is something they're likely to do so yeah I I feel like um it's maybe a sanity check is a little too light yeah yeah Yeah, and what's your absolutely yeah and what's your intention going into those conversations it's to give them that information but but that they need the those kind of those bits and pieces but what else yeah that's a good question I mean I have to say that back in the day at the beginning, my intention was to to get a client. It really was come hell or high water, really. I wanted them to say yes by the end. And I was probably employing some selling techniques at the mm. beginning, naturally, because as I, as I told you, I was kind of propelled by quite a lot of fear at the beginning and a real desire to grow my practice quickly and yeah, but um, that, and because you'd just been working as a salesperson, yeah. you know, in the last couple of years. So you had all those tools. I had. And and of course, I would like, I'm doing myself somewhat down because there was a real desire to serve and to bring this brilliant thing, coaching, more to life. So there was that. But at the beginning, I think I wanted to get them as a client in that consultation session. And then over the years, um, for, for many different reasons, and one of them was that I was lucky enough to have a full practice. Now, zoom forward all these years, I have very different intentions going into a consultation session. One is I cannot wait to find out this whole new person. Like Mm. one of my favorite things to meet a complete stranger and get to know them and have the privilege of them telling me some pretty personal stuff, usually in that first call about their hopes and dreams and what they want from coaching. I, I never, ever take that for granted. And I never find it less exciting that consultation session. So one is really to, to, be there to listen and learn about this whole new individual. Then another intention is to connect with them and to, to really feel into that. And then there is something that I promised myself from a few years in, and that is that if I don't feel that connection personally myself, probably they'd feel that too and decide not to work with me. But but also I, I do feel I have a responsibility to check in for myself. Do I want to work with this person? Is this somebody that I feel that I could serve well and that I could connect with and if the answer is no to that then I promised myself a few years in um, that I would share that with them and say that I feel there might there'll be another coach that would connect better with them and that I could let them know of some people that I could think of maybe so I that's an intention of my going in as well is not just to to have them have a great experience which I think was what I did have in the early days but now it is to for me also to to figure out how I feel about the chemistry between us. I also have an intention to help them understand what coaching is. These days, I, hard, I that's much easier. They tend to know. People tend to understand that it's non-directive. I'm not going to be telling them what to do with their lives. Um, but in the beginning, there was a lot of expectation around me giving advice. And there isn't so much now. Yeah. Yeah, how interesting. And um, I guess I'm curious to hear... 
you know, it feels like that thing that 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 piece you described about the intention that if the connection isn't there for you, and that there might be somebody else that could serve them more. You know, that's my answer when people ask me, well, if I don't know my niche, how do I find it? Well, if you trust yourself on that piece, then over the years, you know, if, yeah. if you do great work, you trust yourself, the referrals follow 10, mostly from people that you've actually worked with, mm-hmm. then there will be some automatic selection that goes on where, yeah, where you end up doing, certainly this is, it's been my intention to bring that in probably in the last year or so particularly, but, you know, that that's how the selection of, of yeah. people that you do your best work with happens. You're exactly right, Robbie. That's my experience entirely, which means that these days, I mean, it's been a number of years since I've spoken to someone in a consultation call that I felt I haven't had the connection with because people are telling people who are telling people who we have a great time together. And so they're telling people that are like-minded and will benefit from the space in a similar way. So yeah, it works wonderfully for me, the referral process. Yeah. And and then so take us through, because another thing that I know lots of coaches are curious about is to hear about different working models of, of how we work with clients. And again, with all your experience that I'm sure you've tried different things and, uh, you know, you spoke mm-hmm. about some of the differences between when you're working for yourself versus working for another company and there may be some restrictions there. But how does a typical engagement with a client go these days? How often do you meet? It's mostly on the phone, you said before. How long do they tend to last? These kind of things. Yeah, you're right. I have tried a number of different ways and there are a load of different ways out there in the market that coaches do. And um, when I tell you mine, I want to make it really clear that, again, I don't necessarily think this is the best way at all. I know that there's lots of other ways that coaches do that are really wonderful. This is just the best way for me and and for the people I work with. So um, actually, funnily enough, the way that I work is I took from Coach U 18 years ago. Um, it was the model that they were they were kind of telling they were teaching new coaches to adopt back then they don't do that anymore they allow coaches um, they tell coaches just to do whatever they want to do but back then there was this kind of prescriptive way of working and I took it and sure enough it's it is how I what I've come back to so it goes like this that I work with people on a kind of monthly uh, with a monthly feel to it and what that means is we work every week of the month apart from the last week, which I call a break week. So we have a session for one hour um, every week, which could be three times. It could be three weeks of the month, or it could be that there's four weeks and then a break week. Just depends on how the the days fall in that particular month. So we work week in, week out, an hour every week. And then the last week of the month, we have what I call a break week. And the reason for that break week is that it gives everybody a chance to have a breather, um, to reflect on what they've been working on, maybe to let it all digest or settle in, to take some action, maybe, and then to come back at the beginning of the next month, all raring to go with energy again. And I really do think there's a lovely energetic flow to that way of working. And for me too, because I get a lighter week in the last week of the month, or sometimes a completely free week. And I think that's, again, another thing that's kept my energy super high all these years for coaching is, is having that break because at the beginning of a new month I am raring to go to hear how my clients have been I've missed them and I really want to hear all their news um so yeah for me 
that that's worked really well and it, it means that there's kind of this monthly feel as I say um and and I work with people for as long as they want to work with me so I don't have a, a fixed time period to that I usually recommend a minimum of around three months not many people have ever been less than that um and three months means that people get to feel some change and and make headway with that coaching but after that it's entirely up to each individual some people have been with me for years and years and years um and they no longer use me to necessarily kind of change something about their life let's say or even to work towards a particular goal other than their health and happiness they tend to then use me for reflective space they find that really useful to have once every month at that stage often something like that that, that keeps them healthy keeps them focused on what's important to them in their lives so after a period of time of working with me some people might change the frequency of working um, and maybe even the topics of working but yeah that that can continue for as long or as little as people want yeah and and if you don't mind saying in terms of money for clients is there a range is there something specific so that people can get a feel for yeah what kind of work this is and how the money works I think yeah. coaches talking about money yeah, it's funny like one of the I've made a few videos about my coaching practice and the one that got the most views in the first like few days was when I just told everyone what my fees had been from start to present it was like a year ago so it's a bit old now but people just absolutely there was clearly a real appetite for that so again yeah. it's a difficult one because we don't always feel comfortable talking about that and I'm sure everyone, whenever asked, they're asked this question, worries, oh, what if a client hears me and whatever? But uh, yeah, I think it'd be really interesting if you're up for talking about that, about how you think about money and coaching. I'm very up for it. I think it's very important. I, I think there's many professions that we either kind of know how much people earn in that particular profession, or it's just obvious if you have a massage, it probably costs this kind of a range. And, and, and it's easy to understand. But for coaches, I feel for our profession in that it's, it's a little bit shrouded a mystery. Sometimes people don't put their fees up on a website, or they'll put their top fee up. But um, and, and I yeah, people starting out, it's really hard for them to know how much they could earn over a month or a week and then over a year and they need that kind of information to be able to work out whether that could support them and their family and so I'm very happy to so I charge well back in the day uh, I started pro bono and then as as I said I was charging about 10 pounds a session or something um and I did as you say gradually gradually increase that over the years but for many many years now I have kept at the same fee and I charge 300 pounds per month for an individual so that would be that they'd have often three calls for that £300 and sometimes four calls for that £300. And that's for an individual paying. If a company is paying me, there's a different rate, which in and of itself is interesting, Robbie. But anyway, uh, the different the different rate, uh, that will really vary for me from organisation to organisation. A typical rate is £250 for a session. And if it's an, an hour and a half, um, they'll pay more because it's £250 for an hour, I should say. But often the sessions are hourly. So... There are some organisations that will use me for a long period of time with a lot of people, and then that might be £200 per hour. Um, and then for charities, I work at the personal rate of £100 an hour. And, and I do some pro bono work still. I hold a number of spaces in my practice to do pro bono work. And when they're full, they're full. But then it does mean that I've always got this, this time that I can give to. Often these days it is charitable organisations, maybe some people that, I'd really love to work with, but that can't afford it at the time. 
Mm. And, and it's great to hear about those the, the various things and the ways that you've playing with that. I mean, it's it's a long story, clearly. But how did you, you know, have you experimented with higher fees at different times? How did you? You sound very comfortable about this pricing structure, this way of working. How did you get to that place? I think I'm partly very comfortable because I really have been doing it this particular way for quite a long time now. So I've been telling people it for years and, and feel comfortable in that. Um, I How did I get to this place? I think one way is that I, in terms of the structure, I tried a lot of different things. And this is the thing, this is the way that seemed to fit best for most people, at least as a way of starting out. Um, in terms of the pricing, I just kept upping it and upping it every month. So I would start at £150 a month, that uh, was one, and then £200 a month, and then, then £250. And then in the end, I reached 300 And I think, and I, I've kept at that for ages. I think, for me, 300 a month is a huge investment for a lot of people. It really is. And it's a considerable amount that they are parting with. I think that's a good thing because I think it means that people are really investing in this huge journey that they're going to embark on with me. And I think the investment is a part of it. It sounds a bit like a sales technique, but I do believe in that. The fact that if people feel that they are investing financially, they will invest with their energy as well. On the other hand, I'm I'm often gently criticised in a loving way, I think, by other coaches to say that my prices are too low for the level of experience I have. And um, I, and I've questioned that myself every time they ask me about it. But I, I really am comfortable where I am because I think moving up from £300 a month might mean I wouldn't necessarily work with the people I want to be able to work with. I mean, £300 a month is still pro- prohibitive for an enormous number of people around the world. So it's still... A high price but yeah personally at this moment I wouldn't want to go any higher with it and then in terms of organizations I I've pretty much just done what other people have done there I've followed what the organizations usually say they pay other coaches and and have been grateful for that so I think that's the answer of how I've got there yeah yeah no it, it's really interesting this I was gonna I was gonna gently poke you about the fees as well um you know <laughs> but, but I think partly that partly because we know that there are a lot of people out there uh, who have a lot less experience than you, including myself, who do sometimes at least charge more. Mm. And so it's an interesting thing to think about why, you know, why we, why we reach the top amount of money that we want to charge. And I think for me, I'm, I play with mine a little bit, but it, it actually feels like it's a lot, you know, that, once I'm once I've got enough money, then I don't need to charge people more for the sake of it. And then there's some questions, and you've kind of brought in about the investment that people make, and sometimes how important that is. But yeah, look, I mean, if we've got a rate that allows us to do wonderful work with people, why would we? Ch- and we don't need more money. Why would we charge more? And that that's a really important point that you raise. I I had there was a person that um, about three years ago, I think it was, I was given some free coaching as part of a a training program that I was a participant in and it was I think two sessions free with a a coach Um, and he was a lovely guy Uh, he was quite new to coaching but was um, doing coaching for this program and I was very happy to be coached for a couple of sessions lovely and as part of it he um, was he was being quite directive actually in his coaching style he was telling me that he he was 
really pushing me on how I should be charging more and then working less hours. He was really, really kind of hooked on this idea for me. Um, and, and he was kind of pressing it and pressing it. And I don't think he was getting where he wanted to get to with me. And in the end, he kind of said, I, I feel resistance from you. What do, what's that about? And I, the answer was really clear for me. It just came out that I, I think that resistance is because I'm really happy with the amount I earn. <laughs> yeah. I, have, I have no more need. I earn what I consider to be an enormous amount of money. I'm really comfortable in my family's income. From, that I bring in I'm really comfortable with it I feel like it affords me and my family the quality of life we really really want and I don't feel any more need for any more and and I told him that and there wasn't really anywhere to go with that <laughs> he didn't have much else to ask me about it and I didn't think I don't think I'd realized it until I was saying it out loud to him but it was and I think about three years ago it was a lovely thing to hear myself say now that's not to say that there aren't moments when I do dream about a lottery win or I wish that I had uh, bucket loads more for holidays, particularly or something. And yet the, those moments are fairly fleeting. The majority of the time, I feel really, really grateful and happy and content. And I feel incredibly privileged to be able to say that I'm aware of it. Mm. But I, I put a lot of work in. I work extremely hard and have worked hard over those years and feel proud of the earnings I have and grateful to the profession for the fees that you can you can charge with it and the power it makes in people's lives and yeah have no more need for any more than that but and it also sounds like because the other thing that you said he said was about working less hours but it sounds like you are happy with that balance as well that's certainly what led me to realizing that I wanted to raise my fees 18 months or so ago was I was stretched and under strain from the number of hours I needed to do in order to make the amount of money that I wanted to make Mm. but it sounds like that's right now at least not a problem with you and your lifestyle sounds balanced and you if you've racked up again 14 plus thousand hours 15,000 hours whatever you must be happy sometimes to do plenty of coaching yeah I am and that is something that again I'm challenged on lovingly by other (laughs) coaches because I I definitely work a higher number of hours in the weeks than a lot of coaches do um and and yet I don't I question myself again on this one thinking am I kidding myself am I a workaholic am I kind of hiding something but I just really like working with lots of different clients and I love all of them and I feel it gives me such a lot of energy and I think that's a real key is that if I was exhausted at the end of the day or the end of the week um, I think it would be a sign that I should cut back and that, yeah, I'm, I should raise my prices and do less hours, as you say. The fact is, I tend to feel better after coaching for a number of hours than I did before coaching. <laughs> and I feel I've got an enormous amount of energy. I'm constantly told that by my friends. And and I, I think that coaching and the job that I have gives me that. So, and I'm healthy and very happy. So I think I must be getting it about right. Having said that, I know I'm getting older and as I get older, I have a feeling that some of the hours, particularly some of the evening hours that I do, I think I'll drop them as time moves on is my guess. But for the moment, I feel healthy and really happy. Yeah. And so give us a, give us an idea of probably on an on week about what a day looks like. How do you structure that? Uh, Because it's amazing if you're getting all that energy from it. And I know that lots of coaches wonder about, you know, time between sessions, space Mm. to do you know, admin and follow up, whether to work in the evenings, all those kind of questions. So give us a sense of what your days look like. 
So um, I've got three little boys is one thing to say. Well, they're not so little anymore. They're growing fast. But um, I've got three boys and it's always been really, well, say always. When I started, I didn't have them. But since I've had them in the last 12 years or so, it's been really important to me that they come first. So my work is and always has been through growing those children. It's always been organized around being a mum primarily. Um, Now they're all at school. And so what I tend to do is I work in the school hours so I, I get the children up, get them ready, do their stuff, get them to school, and then I'll work between the hours of nine and three. Um, and that will vary from day to day. So sometimes I might work with somebody, uh, two clients in the morning, then have a lunch break, and then two in the afternoon. And then I will go and pick up the children from school. I'll have the afternoon with them until bedtime, put them to bed, and then between, or oh, well, my husband will put them to bed, and then between seven and 10 at night, I'm often working. So I'll often work seven, eight, and nine in the evening but not always it varies from week to week and then the same the next day and and it uh, the whole week will vary because sometimes I'll take a whole Tuesday off to do something or a whole Friday off to see friends or but um and I never work on a Friday evening and I never work at the weekend either Mm, really interesting And, and another really practical one you kind of touched on it before but one of the reasons I wanted to invite you to do this is because you're one of those coaches who just doesn't really seem to have any online presence your website for as long as we've known each other i think has just been uh coming soon and then an email address and um obviously not, not coming that soon but um i'm not sure if it does say that it might not it might not um, but yeah i was just curious you know on another really practical note a bit like you know how have you come to the structure of your week and your coaching engagements how have you come to this place where it sounds like it works through marketing and through, sorry, it sounds like it works through referral and that's how your business grows and a few other things that you do, the corporate work and the work with coaches. Yeah, I'm just curious what you think about marketing, websites, online, all the things you probably thought you would have to do or lots of coaches do think they have to do in order to have a successful business. Yes, there's a, a lot of talk, of course, about how to grow your practice and and needing to have an online presence. Um, in talking about it, I'm aware of my special position, as it were, of having started ages ago. Um, so the way I did it and the way I do it now would be possibly quite different to how someone might start out and grow their practice today, for example. So I want to make it clear that I'm not saying how I did it is how people need to do it. Um, I So I because I started out with the word of mouth way and telling people and then have worked with hundreds of people over these years. Sometimes in insecure mo- moments, Robbie, I can wonder why I'm not even more inundated than I am. I, <laughs> I could think considering the number of hundreds of people I've coached, maybe I'm a rubbish coach because yes, my practice is solely through referrals and it supports itself very well, but surely I should have hundreds of inquiries every day, given the number of people um, in insecure moments. I can wonder that, but most of the time I, feel just very lucky that it's just exactly as it is but yeah nowadays because of the number of referrals that come through from past clients and people that I know and people I've worked with I I don't need any more clients than that so I decided a while back to um and I really should just take down the the whole website entirely but to kind of close my website as it were and to not have any online presence in part that's laziness on my part because um, I always felt like I should get round to writing some kind of newsletter or I should have some kind of Facebook or LinkedIn presence or something. It always was this nagging thing at the back of my mind. 
And I never wanted to, and I never had a major need to. But then there was a time a few years back where I thought, I really don't have a need to. And in fact, if I did have more presence online and it did create more clients, that would be tricky for me. I'd have too many. And my temptation would be to serve them all. And then I'd make myself too busy. So I decided, okay, I will now really decide properly not to have much of an online presence at all. And so that, and that has worked really well for me these last few years because I have just the right amount of clients as it were for me. Having said that, as a new coach starting out today, um, I, I can understand the desire to, to use the, the internet as a wonderful tool. And if people have a, a really great presence on Facebook, let's say, or, um, or they want to use podcasts or, some, or blogs, I can see it's a fantastic tool for reaching your audience. Personally, I still think there's no substitute for having conversations with people, real conversations with real people for building your practice. I, don't, I, I always think that that comes top as a way of building your practice. But yeah, the internet is a wonderful tool as well for growing it. It's just that I, I don't feel a need for it. Yeah, and I think that that is certainly what I think makes the difference. It's like, you know, if, if it brings you joy to create a website or mm-hmm. create a podcast, as I'm testing out, or, you know, post on LinkedIn and Facebook, then wonderful. Yeah. Um, by all means, do it. But it sounds like you weren't getting that call. No. And uh, it was just a thing that was going to get in the way of you having more conversations and doing more coaching and having time with your family and all those wonderful things. You got it. It, it always felt like a should. It always was something that I ought to do is is have more online presence, write that thing, do that thing. Yeah. And it was a massive relief to feel like I didn't have to. And so I guess I'm wondering, is there anything, you know, looking forward, is there anything that's calling you, you know, in the next phase of your work, of your business, whatever's coming up? I think it's interesting to think as a coach, how much do you think about what might come next and what you mm-hmm. want to do in the future with your business? And also, if you have got any ideas of that, I'm curious as to what they might be. I do always have ideas. Um, <laughs> they, they're, they're flitting around um, at the back of my mind a lot of the time. And, and there are lots of wonderful ones. Uh, often it centers around working with coaches. And I, I think I told you about an idea I had probably a while back, which was I really wanted to set up some conferences where, um, and call it something to do with being an everyday coach, where coaches could come together and share thoughts and stories about our profession and ask questions of each other and, and an opportunity to, to hear from some incredible coaches, talk on particular topics, have some workshops and then connect. And I'd still love to do that. But and there are other things too. I'd love to write a book, particularly about coaching and my journey with it. Um, I'd love to, yeah, a podcast was something that came into my mind a long time ago, but in a different version, different form. These things float around my mind. And then I I look at my week and I think, um, (laughs) where have I got the time to do those things? And then I ask myself a question that is around what would I most like to be doing? And it keeps coming back to coaching so far. I always want to be, I'd always prefer to be working one-to-one with people in coaching or supervision or mentoring or something. I'd rather do that than spend the time setting up a conference. And so there are times when I think if all my clients left tomorrow or a whole chunk of them did or something happened like that, I sometimes think that would be a real opportunity. I'd be quiet for a month or two and I could use that time to do something else. But that time has never come (laughs) in the whole (laughs) 18 years. It never has materialized that I've had a 
a quiet period. Sometimes I kind of wait for it and think, if it happens, it'll be like the universe saying, now is the time to write the book. But the, the more serious part of it is, is that, as I said, my three boys come first. And so I told myself that I will let my coaching practice kind of flow um, in the way that it wants to, with the priority being look, be, raising these children um, when they're around, when they're outside of school. And so I feel like, you know, the, the littlest ones are eight. And so they've got another 10 years. So my guess is I'll probably be doing things pretty much the same as I currently am for another 10 years. And then when they all fly the nest in their various ways, I have a feeling that I'll have lots of time then. And maybe then I'll be able to put some time into these kind of entrepreneurial, creative ideas. Um, and I'll love doing that then but I have my guess is for 10 years I'll be working pretty much the same as I am now right unless the answer to that question comes back differently Uh, yeah and even even in 10 years the answer may come back I want to be spending more time coaching people in which case I would have thought you'll have plenty of people showing up from the universe to do that yeah fingers crossed that it continues the same I can't think why it wouldn't but yes uh, that it could well be that that answer just always is the same. I'd always rather be talking to somebody, supporting them, working with them, coaching them than doing anything else. It could be that. And I'm really grateful that after all these years, that's still my answer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, probably coming to the end of the conversation pretty soon, but having you here who's worked in coaching for so long, um, I'm, I am curious about how you've seen this fascinating industry that we work in change and also you know where you think coaching is right now and and what it might look like and develop like in the future i yeah i really have seen it change hugely and i'm aware that it is only through my eyes if you know what i mean so anything i say now is entirely my perspective living here in the uk watching it as i have done from from my journey but um my goodness it's been an incredible two decades almost you know of watching it from this thing where someone would ask me if I read hands um or whether I was a sports coach and that's what I meant um and really nobody oh that's right I used to be asked whether I was a lifestyle guru that was a thing back there I think Marie <laughs> Blair had a lifestyle guru at the time way back and people would ask me if that's what I was uh so way back then to now I hardly ever have to describe what it is that I do maybe because people know me but but people do seem to have some idea of what coaching is so that's a massive change in and of itself there are a ton of coaches now that exist which is brilliant and I love it um people if you ask someone if you say what you do they'll often say oh I, my sister-in-law does that or, mm-hmm. does that or does that alongside something else and so just an enormous amount of coaches have emerged in our training which is fantastic the corporate market has adopted it wholesale it feels um, maybe that's not true but in the last two decades that's a big difference um it used to be that maybe the very top maybe the ceo had a coach but it was a kind of secret thing um back then and as i say american express were early to use me then um, and it wasn't really a strategy it was more of a kind of experiment whereas these days as we know um most organizations will talk about having a coaching culture loads of them have internal coaching mm. programs they'll have an enormous raft of external coaches that they'll bring in on their preferred supplier list um so yeah it's 
there's very few organizations, certainly kind of big established ones that don't have some form of coaching supply uh, in their organization. So yeah, it's, it's changed hugely both in with individuals and in corporations. And I love it. it. It's been a wonderful thing to be part of and to see, and then to talk about where it's going forward. Um, I'd really like it. I'd really hope, and I can't see why it won't, but I'd love it to be something that people just think of as you would a mechanic or a dentist. If your tooth hurts, people don't tend to think about, oh, maybe I just need to sit with it hurting. Um, (laughs) They they just tend to go to a dentist. Um, And I would really love to feel that if people feel as though they're at a crossroads in their life, they want to explore something, they want to make some kind of change, move forward with something, create something new, um, that they would immediately think of finding the right coach for them immediately. And I, I'd love that to be the case. And I don't think it is the case now. I mean, for much of the population. And I get that part of that is possibly that, that fees are prohibitive for a fair bit of the population. But yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I wonder about that. I wonder, as there are more coaches, I wonder whether our prices will lower because it'll become more competitive. And I wonder if that's a very good thing because it will then be more accessible. But it's just a... Yeah, and, and look, you know, one of the reasons why it's it can be important for a coach to not charge low fees is because it's, it's quite hard to find, create, get, whatever word you like, a client. Yeah. And if actually the whole society's viewpoint has changed, yeah. then suddenly there'll be more people looking for coaches. And so it will be possible to have a sustainable business whilst charging 30, 40 pounds a session. Yeah. Whereas that's just not true now. If you, Well, I mean, it kind of is, but it's hard if you do the sums about how much money you can make from that and how many new clients have to come in. It's yeah. a lot, yeah. but it'd be interesting. Yeah. If, if people looked at coaching in that really different way, all that would become more possible. Yeah. But, but, and I think the flip side of it is, because is that people you know, sometimes I think one of the most, for some people, one of the most magical things about paying for a coach is putting that kind of value on themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, whether that's 50 pounds or a hundred or a thousand or more Yeah. That, that saying, no, look, I am worth an investment of, or my happiness or my stress or my well-being or my fulfillment yeah. is worth an investment of X hundred or Y thousand pounds. Then that's quite a powerful message to take out into your life. Yeah. I always believe that it, that, that investment, that stretch serves the client. I, I've just seen it too many times to, to not believe that and to think that it is marketing. It isn't. It is true. It does serve the client to reach where they want to reach with it. It's, it's that I, I know that the average household wage, for example, that, that mine, my price probably would be too much for that maybe and so I'd love that to be maybe more of a sliding scale something like that and but you're absolutely right it's finding clients is tough for coaches starting out and so the the fees do tend to reflect that yeah I just hope that when it is more of a household name a thing that you just go and do yeah that that will change things yeah and and maybe to that to one of those last things you said before we wrap up I mean uh, you, know, you must get asked this question all the time because you do lots of work with coaches. What what advice do you give to people about how to, you know, practical, literal practical advice on, on how to create more clients, how to build a sustainable coaching business? <laughs> That's a really big question, Robbie. Um, yeah, I'll just give you like two, three minutes to answer. 
<laughs> um, well, Michael Neal, um, who who is a, a thought leader in the field of personal development, he he talks about the the way of growing a sustainable coaching practice is to be the best coach you can be. Yeah. He says, invest in your coaching, invest in yourself as a coach, in yourself as a person. And practice, practice, practice. And Thomas Leonard said, he was very famous for saying, get to 100 clients as quickly as you can, to 100 hours as quickly as you can. Just coach, coach, coach. That was his advice to new coaches. Get experience under your belt. But so if, if, so then, so if I'm the new coach, my question for you is, yeah, but how do I do that? Yeah. And, and you'd be right to ask it because, like, yeah, you're, you're willing and able to coach. You're sitting in your room all ready to go. <laughs> We're able to coach. Um, so then I turn to the prosperous coach's advice, I suppose, and what I found so useful at the beginning is talk about it. Talk about it to people that you want to talk about it with. Uh, in my case, it was all and sundry, but you can be more <laughs> selective than that. But just talk talk about it to people that you know and get them to talk about it with other people if they can and create conversations around coaching and around them and their lives and what they might like to change and invite people to try it out with you for free if you've got the time and energy to do that but for me that worked really well to start coaching even at no cost and and have those conversations with people for me those are the things get coaching get talking about it, do as much as you possibly can and really invest in your coach learning and coach training. Yeah. And it just feels as you're answering that, what came up for me is, you know, all of those things. I, I, I basically agree, right. That all of those things are basically how I grew my business and, and the kind of things I share. But the question that came up was, I guess, what advice do you give or what suggestions do you have for for the doubts that come up as you do that, for the doubts as you talk about people, you know, coaches, you know, whose inner critics and all those things are going off like mad as they try and talk about coaching with their family and their friends and at events and and uh, are doubting themselves as they're yeah. sitting down w- for the third time ever for free or the first time ever for £50 or the first time ever for £1,000. You know, I, I guess maybe it's the same always how do you think about that and what suggestions or advice or, or things I'm, glad you, I'm really glad you've asked that because it's the most common thing amongst new coaches that I train or support or supervise is, is are those insecure thoughts and feelings that I remember really intensely from my time back then and you know occasionally still now and I so yeah what I say to them is first of all to know that that's really normal <laughs> um that and and it helps you to know it's normal if you're part of a community of coaches. I mean, one way is to have a mentor coach who can remind you that it's normal. Um, and then also to find a community somehow of coaches. Maybe it could be through your training provider. Maybe you could find coaches in your area. There's many different ways. There's chapters in the ICF, for example, there's the AC. But if you do connect with other coaches, you find that they're all feeling probably pretty much the same thing. They've got those fears around business startup. They've got fears around their coaching. As a profession, I, I'd i like to do some research to see how it stacks with others, but I've got the sneaking suspicion that we are far harder on ourselves as coaches as, than other professions. We really agonize over whether we're doing a good enough job and whether we're providing enough value. Partly, I wonder if it's the non-directive nature of it. Because we're not doing anything or giving anything, giving advice or 
giving them something they take away because it's them that does the work and we facilitate that I wonder if that's part of the challenge of are we doing enough what is valuable to them um so but we are often quite racked with that feeling of is this good enough um and that and I, I feel sad about that because it limits coaches from growing and and developing and feeling confident in themselves so I tell people as I say first of all that that is normal and that we are all experiencing it to some extent or other at different points to connect with other coaches to, so that you know it's normal and to keep digging into that thing that we talked about at the beginning whereby showing up and caring about your client and listening really deeply from the heart that is an incredibly powerful service and gift that you give your client and if you need to remind yourself of that to come back to that then then that can help with some of those insecure thoughts but keep keep coaching keep doing more because with the more evidence that that listening and that support that that is valuable and powerful for people then you start to feel less of the insecure thoughts and there's this lovely virtuous circle with it yeah beautiful well look Katie that feels like a lovely moment to kind of bring the conversation to a close um thank you so much before we do is there anything else that you wanted to to share or say that we that we haven't that we haven't caught so far? No, I think you've got everything, even how I met my husband. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, look, Katie, thanks so much. Uh, it's such a great opportunity to have this conversation and hear those some of those details and bits of your story that I didn't know before. It's like when you're, when you, you know, you're my coach. So mostly when we're speaking, I, it's very important that I talk about myself, but it's great to have an opportunity <laughs> to talk about you. Um, I think that piece about communities is really important. And at what, whenever the Everyday Coach Conference <laughs> community comes into existence, I'm sure people will snap off your fingers for it oh. and many of the other things too. Well, Robbie, um, I'd like to thank you. It's been such a treat and wholly indulgent, but hopefully useful, but a real treat to remember all of those years and hours. And, um, and it makes me feel very, very blessed. So thank yeah. you for that opportunity. Yeah, and look for those listening. I'll put all the links to the things we've spoken about in the um, in some notes, and they'll be at thecoachesjourney dot com. And thanks for listening. Thanks, Katie, and uh, look forward to maybe speaking to you again, Katie, for another for another episode at some point, if that's the kind of thing that happens. Because I think there's a load of things that even in this time I didn't didn't get around. We didn't get around to talking about. But um, other than that, until uh, next time. Until then, thanks, Robbie. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone. Robbie here again. Um, Just one more thing before you head off to whatever else you've got going on with the rest of your day, and that is to let you know about the Coach's Journey community. Um, This is a way of working with me um, where I support a group of coaches, a community of coaches who want to create a thriving coaching business and thrive as people while they do it and be connected to other people who are on that same journey with all the benefits that that entails. So I designed it especially to be a flexible and affordable way to work with me, which means that membership starts from um, as little as about £10 a month and goes all the way up to about £100 a month, which is full membership of the program, which includes all 10 community calls each year um, and some one-on-one coaching sessions with me too. So you can find out loads more about that at thecoachesjourney.com forward slash community. Membership is rolling. You can join anytime. um, And yeah, I hope that I get to meet some of you 
on one of those calls in the future. But until then, um, really hope you enjoyed that conversation between Katie and I. Um, and yeah, best of luck with everything to do with your coaching work. Thank you.